Hi everyone. I trust that you've had a good week. Maybe some days have been better than others, and maybe some days have been really sad. I think that's pretty normal, and that's okay. Don't get too distressed by all the things that you're not doing in this time. Some people suggest that we should all be learning to play the piano or completing a university course during this lockdown, but that's probably not realistic. Just keep on going day by day. Try and set up a program for the day. Keep on getting up and dressed and showered. And set yourself a couple of goals for the day. Write a to-do list and write down create to-do list on the top of your list. That way you'll immediately have something that you can tick off. Spend some time with God. Do a bit of exercise. And reach out to others. Try and do something for someone else, even if that's just sending an encouraging WhatsApp or phoning someone. Be kind to yourself. This is a difficult time. And if you get really stuck and need some help, please feel free to phone me or one of the other church leaders. Don't struggle alone. Last week was Easter Sunday, and I spent quite a bit of time trying to decide what passage to preach on, and I finally decided on John chapter 20. It was a really close call between John chapter 20 and one of my other favorite Easter passages, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it suddenly struck me this past week that I don't have to wait until next Easter to preach on 1 Corinthians 15. There's nothing in the rule book that says you can only preach on it at Easter, and actually it's okay to extend Easter for another week, which is what I'm going to do. In this crisis in which we find ourselves, I really do believe that there is no greater assurance and comfort for us than the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1953, the German New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann said this, The event of Easter Day is nothing else than the rise of faith in the risen Lord. All that historical criticism can establish is the fact that the first disciples came to believe in the resurrection. So he didn't believe in an actual resurrection, but merely the rise of faith within the disciples. David Jenkins was a Church of England minister who became the Bishop of Durham from 1984 till 1994, and he also believed that Jesus didn't physically rise from the grave but rather rose spiritually. He's famous, or rather infamous, for saying that the resurrection of Jesus was a conjuring trick with bones. Interestingly, three days after he was consecrated as bishop, the big cathedral in York was struck by lightning, leading to a devastating fire, and many people believe that that was God's judgment on David Jenkins for his statements. There are plenty of people who say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but how tragic to have Bible-believing Christians or even Bible teachers saying that Jesus was raised only in the minds of the disciples. What difference would it make if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? 
What difference would it make if on that first Sunday morning Mary and the other woman had gone down to the tomb and found Jesus' body there, anointed it with spices and then gone back home again? What difference would it make? Well, the answer to that is, of course, all the difference in the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul describes not only the fact of the resurrection, but also of its implications for our own lives. We're not going to have time to look for the evidence that he presents here. We're going to focus in on the implications. But let's have a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 26 and verses 54 to 58. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed unto you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 54. 
when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. To many of us, the resurrection of Jesus is a doctrine to be held like we hold many other doctrines, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of salvation. We repeat these things in our creeds, but what practical day-to-day -day significance does the resurrection have to our lives? Well, there are many different things that we could look at from this passage, but this morning I want to suggest to you that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ has implications for faith, hope, and love. The Bible often holds those three things together. You may remember, in fact, that earlier, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Firstly, then, the resurrection of Jesus has implications for our faith. Some of you may be familiar with the name of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was a very well-known, very outspoken atheist. He was the author of the best-selling book, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. A few years before his death, he was interviewed on the radio by Unitarian minister Marilyn Sewell. And near the beginning of the interview, Sewell asked this question. The religion you cite in your books is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Christopher Hitchens replied, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And Marilyn tried to justify herself. She said, I disagree with that. I consider myself a Christian. I believe in the Jesus story as story, as narrative. And Jesus as a person whose life is exemplary that I would want to follow. But I don't believe in all that stuff that I just outlined. And again, Christopher Hitchens replied, I simply have to tell you that every major Christian, including theologians, have said that without the resurrection and without the forgiveness of sins, what I call the vicarious redemption, it's meaningless. In fact, without that, it isn't even a nice story, even if it's true. And Marilyn Sewell quickly backpedaled as fast as she could. She didn't want to get into that conversation, and so she quickly changed the topic. But I found it fascinating that Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, grasped the central truth of Christianity better than this so-called Christian lady. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead, you're not in any meaningful sense a Christian. 
That, in fact, is what Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus lies at the very centre of our faith. No resurrection, no faith. As Paul goes on to say in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I like the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases verses 17 and 18 in the message version of the Bible. He says, If Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. Petite more than all people, is the way the NIV puts it. You see, on many occasions, Jesus told his disciples that after his death, he would rise from the dead. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that means his statements about his resurrection were false. And if those statements were false, then it calls into question everything else that Jesus ever said. However, if the resurrection did take place, then that authenticates everything else that Jesus ever said. It's a little bit like that incident in Jesus' life that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 9. You have the men who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man lying on his mat and says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders who are there shake their heads and say, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man does. Jesus' actions demonstrated the truth of his words. And the same is true of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead demonstrates the truth of everything else that he ever said. We can trust what he said. His claim to be the Son of God. His claim to be able to forgive our sins. His claim to give us rest for our souls. His claim to give us life, life in all its fullness. His promise that he would never leave us. His promise that one day he will return. All of that becomes true because of the resurrection. Our faith is not futile. The resurrection has implications for our faith, but secondly, the resurrection of Jesus has implications for our hope. And in this passage, Paul really speaks about two types of hope. Firstly, there is personal hope, particularly in the light of death. One of the things that probably hurts the most about the death of a loved one is its finality. It doesn't matter if the person lived until the age of 99 and died in her sleep. It's that finality that is the most difficult and painful thing to deal with. I came across a quote by Lemony Snicket about death, which I found to be very accurate. He wrote, It's a curious thing, the death of a loved one. 
It's like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking there is one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air and there is a sickly moment of dark surprise as you try and readjust the way you thought of things. And death is really a horror, isn't it? I remember a few years ago reading C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, and near the beginning of the book he speaks about his mother's death when he was only seven years old, and he describes what happened in this way. I was taken into the bedroom where my mother lay dead, as they said, to see her. In reality, as I at once knew, to see it. There was nothing that a grown-up would call disfigurement, except for that total disfigurement, which is death itself. To this day, I don't know what they mean when they call dead bodies beautiful. The ugliest man alive is an angel of beauty, compared with the loveliest of the dead. But Paul says in this passage that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we who have lost loved ones can have the hope that they too will be raised from the dead. Those of us who are yet to die have the hope that we too will be raised from the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Toward the end of his life, the writer Mark Twain was in a very melancholic mood, and he wrote this, I don't know if it was his final belief on the matter, but it certainly expressed his sentiments at the time. He wrote, A myriad of men are born. They labour and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The release comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. And those melancholy words would be 100% true if Jesus was not raised from the dead. As Paul says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. But then there's that wonderful turning point in verse 20 where Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So wonderful to see that Paul can describe death for a Christian as falling asleep. Do you see that in this verse? Those who have fallen asleep. For a Christian to die simply means falling asleep and waking up in the presence of Jesus. When my girls were a lot younger, they would sometimes fall asleep in the strangest places. Sometimes they would be spread across the couch or lying on the floor. At one time, Sarah even fell asleep with her chin on the table. Sometimes they weren't even at our house. They fell asleep at church or at a friend's house. But what happened? I would pick them up in my arms and carry them to their beds. And the next thing that they were aware of 
would be waking up at home. For a Christian, to die means to fall asleep and to wake up in the presence of Jesus. It's very interesting, though, that nowhere in the New Testament does the Bible describe Jesus as falling asleep. The writers consistently say that Jesus died. Jesus took the full force of death so that you and I need never experience death in the way that he did. Those of us who are in Christ fall asleep. And so Paul can say in verses 54 to 56, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't necessarily understand exactly how all of this works, but we do have hope for the future that one day we will see Jesus face to face. I remember hearing about a country pastor who went to the home of one of his congregation members who was dying. He went uh, upstairs into the man's bedroom and the man who was a Christian asked the pastor to tell him something about the afterlife. What would it be like? What would happen there? And the pastor fumbled for a reply for quite a while. And while he was thinking, suddenly both of them heard a scratching on the bedroom door. And the pastor said to this man, do you hear that scratching? He said, it's my dog. I left him downstairs, but he's grown impatient and wants to come and be with me. He has no idea what's inside this room. He's never seen this room before, but he knows that I am here and that's enough. And he said, isn't it the same with you? You don't know what lies beyond this door called death, but you know that Jesus is there and that's enough. So there is, Paul says, a personal hope. But secondly, in these verses, we also see a global, even a universal hope. This hope is not just for us, but for the world. Have a look again at verse 24. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. There is hope that one day the universe will be restored. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell once wrote this, All the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. That, thankfully, is not the biblical picture. On the last page of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we read, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning 
or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There's a wonderful scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, where Sam Gamgee, Frodo's companion, wakes up, having been rescued from the fiery mountain. And the person who rescues him is the wizard Gandalf, who Sam thought was dead. Let me read the conversation to you. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. Where are we? he asked. And a voice spoke softly behind him. In the land of Ithlian, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? That's a great question, isn't it? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And as Timothy Keller puts it in one of his books, the answer of Christianity to that is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Our hope this morning is not merely for ourselves, but for an entire world put right with God. The resurrection has implications for our faith. It has implications for our hope, both personally and universally. And then thirdly and finally, the resurrection of Jesus has implications for our love. Now, when we hear the word love, we often think in terms of chocolates and flowers and warm, fuzzy feelings. But that's not what the Bible means when it speaks about love. Jesus said we're to love our enemies, which definitely doesn't mean warm, fuzzy feelings. It means an action. You can see that, in fact, in the parallelism of what Jesus says. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So love is an action. And Paul describes love in action in the final verse of this passage, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There are a couple of things here. Notice how this ties in to the universal hope we spoke about a moment ago. Paul has spoken about the fact that one day Jesus will return and sort everything out. And now look at the application that Paul makes. We might have expected Paul to say, Christ is coming. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Eagerly await him. Everything will be sorted out. But he doesn't do that. Paul says in a nutshell, Jesus is coming. So get busy. And look at how he puts it. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's so important to see. What we do here lasts into eternity. As I mentioned, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
these three remain, faith, hope, and love. J.B. Phillips translates verse 58 in this way, Nothing you do for him is ever lost or wasted. What are we to be doing until Christ returns? We are to be busy in building for the kingdom. You may have heard the story of how Sir Christopher Wren, the architect, was building St. Paul's Cathedral in London and one day visited the building site and he chatted with some of the construction workers. He went up to one man who was busy laying bricks and he asked the man, what are you doing? And the man looked at him slightly sideways and said, I'm laying bricks. What does it look like I'm doing? And Sir Christopher Wren went on and he saw a man who was installing a window. And again, he asked the man, what are you doing? And the man replied, I'm installing a window. And this went on all afternoon. Sir Christopher Wren would ask a seemingly obvious question and in each case was given an equally obvious reply. Until the end of the afternoon, when Sir Christopher Wren came across an old woman who was busy sweeping part of the construction site. Again, he asked the question, what are you doing? And this lady turned to him and her face lit up and she said, Sir, I am building a cathedral. At the moment, we are busy building for God's kingdom. And what we do matters, even in this time of lockdown. Sending a WhatsApp message, sending an email to a healthcare worker, offering to do some shopping, making masks, baking biscuits for healthcare workers, setting up a Zoom meeting with your Bible study group, phoning someone who is stuck alone in a flat. All of these things done in Jesus' name last into eternity. We're not merely cultivating and tending a garden that one day will get bulldozed. What we do here and now will continue on into eternity. Nothing that we do for him is ever lost or wasted. And so just those three areas this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, means that my faith is not futile. It means that I have hope for the future. It means that I can live a life of love knowing that what I do is not in vain. May God bless you. Amen.